Hello, Fred. Thank you, as always, for joining me here on The Tully Show. By now, I believe you know the drill. We'll spend, you and I, the next 30 to 60 minutes talking about the headline, heavy-hitting new music releases of the month that was October 1982. If that is not enough for you, when we're done, follow me into the deep end, the deep cuts, the best of the rest of new music, October 1982. How deep is your love for Devo and Super Tramp and Bauhaus and George Martin? The fifth Beatle produced a band in October of 1982. He described them as the most musical act I've come across in years. Who was it? The answer may shock you. Find out for free. I'm going to post both the audio and the video of the companion pod to October 1982 new music releases exclusively when you're done here at my Patreon. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Hope to see you there. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from a guitar and guitar cable strewn even more rock and roll than usual podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign this is the Tully show I am your host Mike Tully back once again thank you for joining me once again as we take a fresh look at some very very, very old music. Too old, if you ask me. I forget how, when, or why we went off the rails here, but we had a nice sort of synergy going, you and I, where we'd be talking about the stuff that came out exactly 40 years ago, and it fell off the pace, and now it's like 40 years and five months, and <clears throat> it occurred to me, it took me a year or two, but it occurred to me that I was never going to catch up doing one month at a time and to be sure there will be a time probably um in the first quarter of 1983 when I, I i compact a couple of months into one but i'm not getting back five months that way so i decided to accelerate the pace a little bit partially to get back on track and partially just because i really enjoy doing these shows so much and i can tell from the feedback that i get that um there's at least a few of you who enjoy it just as much as i do so welcome back and uh, i'm gonna start it's increasingly becoming my habit to kick things off with an apology boy sounds like my marriage uh with i want to a correction i guess i was so excited talking about the the song that Phil Collins produced for the singer from ABBA, which, and I went, by the way, I, I listened to the better part of that album. It's pretty interesting. You can kind of see the stuff that was for the ABBA fans and the stuff, and, and believe you me, you might be shocked just how obsessive and gigantic the worldwide ABBA fan base really is. They struck a chord. That, that thing that they did, billions of people really, really like that stuff. And then there was the stuff that was clearly intended to ingratiate a member of to to take the 70s stink off of abba and to to put that the phil collins drum sound 80s sheen sheen on and you could definitely hear here's the stuff for mtv and here's the stuff for the abba fans and you can guess 
which stuff I preferred. But in talking about that album and that single from that album that I really, really enjoy a lot, I think it's one of the real hidden gems, one of the real lost hidden gems of the 80s, I failed to identify the singer's name, as more than one of you pointed out. And I'm sure Phil Collins had did a lot of heavy lifting on that, but we should point out that the singer of that song her name is, I don't know, she's got a long Swedish name, but she was just known to ABBA fans the world over, past, present, and future, as Frida. I think you pronounce it Frida. F-R-I-D-A. So thank you for pointing that out, whoever pointed that out. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to do this. I, it, it, you know, I've, I've done a bunch of episodes about was this song stolen or not. This may, this has to be the deepest, deepest was this ripped off of that cut that I will ever have to offer with the world? And I'll admit from the top that this is a stretch. So I'll be brief about this, but I I already blew one opportunity to do this. I don't think there's ever going to be another pod where I'm talking about the Frida song, I Know What's Going On, that she put out in September of 82. So here it goes. Just, I'll refresh your memory. Here's the Frida song that she did with Phil Collins that we all checked out last month. It's very good. And then there's this. Does the name Tommy Bolin mean anything to you? I used to get him mixed up with Mark Bolin of T-Rex because they were both, their heydays were pretty much the exact same time. And there's no relation. I think Tommy, Tommy Bolin's American and Mark Bolin was British for one thing. But Tommy Bolin was a guy who was uh, kind of tapped as a next big thing. Jack of all trades played with like Deep Purple and James Gang also had this big solo career. But I don't, I don't know that he ever really popped in the mainstream and he died prematurely. It's one of these uh, perfect perfectly tragic rock and roll stories he's talking to his guitar player and his guitar player goes take care of yourself to which tommy replies i've been taking care of myself my whole life don't worry about me i'm gonna be around for a long time which you know you see somebody says that in a movie you know they're gonna be dead in 30 seconds in this case tommy bolin went home and fatally overdosed on heroin but he left behind a body of work that has its devotees and the first time i heard that frida song i was like boy it sure sounds a lot like the big Tommy Boland song. I know, I know, I know. It starts off being, oh my God, it's the exact same thing. And then they go in completely different directions. And the Frida song is ultimately, I think, a better song, depending on what your particular vibe is. But as I said, I'm never going to have another chance to share that. That occupies one little, that similarity occupies a tiny little nook in the back of my brain. And allow, uh, thank you for indulging me. We will move on into the future of the past October 1983. I always like to set the context, what's going on in the larger creative musical, musical adjacent world. And the only thing that uh, really caught my eye was a musical. Cats was, as far as I can tell, I never saw it. Uh, I'm pretty proud of that. God willing, I never will. I don't hear good things. I have zero interest. I When I was a kid i grew up in the new york area so we had all of the broadway commercials and used to always say cats now and forever at the winter garden theater 
Because it played forever. It came out in 1983 and inexplicably struck a chord. And people just kept on going to see this thing, which was highlighted by this song right here. You can go find it if you're interested in hearing more than just a tiny little clip of that. Cats, which played forever and then finally mercifully shut down. Finally enough, there were there were no more retirees left who were willing to get on a bus from the the suburbs and come in to go to the Winter Garden Theater to see that. And just when we thought that it was uh, resigned to the dustbin of history, they of course made the movie remake of it somewhat recently. James Corden and Taylor Swift and then nobody liked that movie and people were oddly horrified by the bizarre CGI and probably the best thing that has ever come out of the entire worldwide movie musical stage phenomenon of Cats was the um, small but vibrant online hashtag movement demanding to see a cut of the most recent theatrical film with the cat's buttholes digitally <laughs> inserted that finally cats was good for something in our culture. Okay. So that's, that's what's going on outside of the, the record business, the major label radio. And now critically to, to what we're going to talk about MTV music business, where we, where we pick up this month. I want you, cause I can put myself very easily in in the shoes of a kid in this period of time. Cause I'm like five when this is happening. So I'm not, I don't have like disposable income. I'm not going and buying records. It would be a few years before I could do that. But we, I was just old enough to be on the ground floor of MTV and just about everything that we are going to talk about on, on this episode is stuff that was featured prominently on MTV. It really, really strikes me. I always try to hit all the different genres. Here's what was happening. Noteworthy in, in R&B, in pop, in indie rock, all the credible stuff. But I don't know where the chicken or the egg is here. Pop is having a moment that's aided and abetted by MTV or MTV is making pop bands so big that it's sucking all of the oxygen out of the room for other genres that are less willing to put on makeup, do synchronized dances, uh, lower themselves artistically to make a music video. But I I went through in granular detail and looked at all the stuff that came out in this month. There isn't a bunch of real credible rock that people just didn't find out about because it didn't air on MTV. you're welcome to join me. You're always invited to come listen to the companion pod. All of the stuff that came out in 1982 that like anybody with any musical taste would give a damn about was almost entirely pop music. And I find that really, really remarkable. Pop has sort of always been a byword for cheap. Of course, there's great pop music. We all know that. And the Beatles were a pop band, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's always been this stink of the way that you get something to be really, really popular is to take the cool, creative, daring edges off, to water it down, to make something that is palatable, to like a McDonald's burger, 
to the masses. And it's it's the facts at this exact moment in musical time just don't bear that out. I think you will agree. By far, the most interesting, flat-out good stuff happening in music is pretty straightforward pop, albeit pop of a lot of different colors. So I want you to want you to imagine something. So it's imagine you well, it's October, so you wouldn't have been shoveling snow. Let's just say there was a freak snowstorm and you went out in October of 82, and I did this a few times when I was a kid, maybe you did too, and you walked all over the neighborhood and you shoveled a bunch of houses and you came home with 20 bucks in your pocket. Okay, now I looked it up. And a vinyl record in 1982, usually a new one, retailed for for some weird reason. They always ended in 98, not 99, which I'm still not really clear why things so often end in 99 rather than in even numbers. But you're looking at probably 798 to 998 for a new record. They would discount them. You may remember the nice price stickers when something had been around for a while and had lost a little bit of its luster. But you got you got 20 bucks in your pocket and that will get you probably two albums and you're gonna go to a record store in october of 1982 you tell me which two you are going to pick out of all of the new releases we're about to go through one by one beginning with this one right here marvin gay was um his life was about to be tragically cut short you probably know the story there. If not, look into it. But he had one great musical comeback that sadly was peaking. He was back, ha- having been in the personal and professional wilderness for some time, just when uh, you know his father tragically took his life. But he'd had his big run with Motown and then had personal issues, financial financial issues. I think above all else, he had drug issues. To the point where he was disappointing fans with his live performances. He hadn't had a hit in a while. He met some weird stranger who just took pity on him and said, come stay in my castle. And Marvin Gaye went and stayed in some guy's castle in a country or region that, frankly, I've never heard of. But he went there and he got clean or clean enough and he got artistically rejuvenated and he realized that he was becoming irrelevant and he may it may already be too late he needed a hit and he needed it now uh, but he needed to reconcile making a pop song with his deep religious and spiritual convictions and so of the album midnight love that marvin gay released in october of 1982 he said if you listen closely You'll hear my heart speaking. You'll hear me testify that I believe in Jesus, that I believe in God's miraculous grace. I still believe that the Lord forgives even when, and especially when, we cannot forgive ourselves. And I think you will agree. You have to listen pretty closely to hear that subtext in this gigantic hit song. Help to read 
just as Marvin Gaye. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. But the at its core, a song about religious devotion. You'll have to take Marvin Gaye's word for it. I'm sure the rest of the album is very, very, very spiritual. I'm being an asshole here. So as Marvin Gaye was enjoying his last taste of uh, professional success, at least when he was here among us, Prince was finally arriving in a major way. I know he'd had, I think, a minor hit or two, but by the time that most of us found out about Prince, he had been a, a recording artist for four or five years. I, I actually, at one point, just because you can do this nowadays, sat down and listened to uh, the first few Prince albums top to bottom. And, you know, you can... Hindsight's twenty twenty. You can hear the hints of the guy who he's going to be later on. But there's lots and lots and lots of stuff that's sort of unremarkable, at least to me, that is uh, him exploring musical dead ends. He's going down avenues that we wouldn't hear him going down once he once he found his uh, the sound that the world would respond to. And he is all the way there by uh, October of nineteen eighty two. This is the landmark. 1999 album, three hits. There's Little Red Corvette, there's Delirious, and of course there is the title track. So there's Prince putting it all together on his fifth solo, uh, his fifth album, actually the first album that wasn't technically solo. He was billed on that one for the first time as Prince and the Revolution. Meanwhile, same time, Hall & Oates are already up to their 11th album. And it had hits, right? There's what, like Sarah, Smile, Rich Girl, right? And don't really, don't sleep on this. There are, there were some artists, and I, I have no idea, I don't, looking back, I don't know if anybody still can figure out what it is, that some people kept doing what they were doing, but replaced real drums and real studio musicians with some keyboards and some drum machines, and it was just weird and wrong and cringy, and they just couldn't get into the 80s. And some people, their thing just, they just hit the ground running in transitioning to an MTV-ready real like 80s modern sound modern at that time of course and i, I think on paper hollow notes would have been an unlikely candidate for that because what they were doing was already sort of a throwback blue-eyed soul thing they were already drawing on retro influences in the 70s and yet somehow some way they they stuck to their guns they some of these bands made it into the 80s by not really sounding like them 70s selves anymore there's never been a big Hollow Notes song I can think of that doesn't sound like Hollow Notes and only Hollow Notes, but actually this song right here is a perfect example of them really embracing 80s technology. I've actually, because this is what I do with my free time when I'm driving kids back and forth to school and activities, I Wikipedia Hollow Notes sometimes, doesn't everybody? And uh, well, let me tell you, so the album is, it's their 11th album, it's called H2O Hall oats right yeah uh man eaters on this family man you may remember that one is on this those are a little bit closer to because you know uh, man eater has that 
doo-woppy kind of finger snap and vibe to it but but the 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 third single my favorite song from this album at least i've only never listened to the album from the singles is the most progressive the most musically progressive of the three and daryl hall tells the story that he had just gotten some like unboxed some brand new synthesizer thing and he kind of just turned it on and hit a couple buttons and it started making this very primitive but painfully 80s noise and he kind of just wrote this song on the spot So uh, Hollow Notes on their 11th album here in October 82. Lionel Richie releases his debut solo album, but it is far from his first rodeo. He's been a member of the Commodores, who've had a bunch of hit songs. And the story that I have heard is basically this. The Commodores are a funk band, and they're doing Brickhouse and stuff like that, and Lionel Richie emerges as a songwriter in his own right, but his specialty is writing these soft piano ballad love songs and i think the the commodores either lionel richie's songwriting talent eclipsed that of the other commodores or they just got a little complacent and they said pretty much every album cycle they'd go okay lionel you got another one of those piano songs that could be a big hit for all of us and i think lionel richie started looking around after a while and was like what exactly do i need these guys for so he's technically still a member of the Commodores. I guess he was playing it safe. He puts out the so- his debut solo album as a Commodore, and then it blows up, and then he leaves the Commodores for good. And this album features more of his signature piano balladry. I'm sure you remember the song Truly. That could have been a Commodore song. Instead, Lionel kept all the money on that one. But he transitions into a real signature 80s artist, I think, more noticeably with the mid-tempo hit song from his self-titled solo debut. Good I love You can almost hear the teal light sweater with the sleeves pushed up to the elbows in the style of the day that Lionel Richie wore on the cover of that album. Yeah, that's solid middle of the road. It's I, honestly listening to that back. It's like it's like a decent Michael Jackson song with all the shamans surgically removed. Lionel Richie arriving as a potent commercial force for the rest of the decade, really, here in 1982. Pat Benatar, also a potent musical force. I th- to me, Pat Benatar, how often, when's the last time you thought about Pat Benatar? When's the last time you listened to Pat Benatar? And yet, if you were there, you remember 
she was flipping huge. I think she emerges as the least remarkable borderline music superstar of the decade. I remember that they were straining to say something noteworthy about her at one point on, uh, I think, pop-up video. And they said that she was credited as being the first rocker to dance in a music video, in the music video for Love is a Battlefield. That was a big no-no in the rock world, which somebody forgot to tell Elvis, among other people, <laughs> about that rule. But, you know, the big 80s synchronized, lots of throwing your shaman hands around. Um, and I, even then I remember thinking, you really need to stretch the boundaries of what you consider rock beyond what I would call the breaking point to call Pat Benatar rock. But indeed, there's guitars and I guess technically it fits the bill. And so let's remember, it's you, it, there was an early snowstorm. Maybe you live way the heck up in Saskatchewan. You got 20 bucks in your pocket and you're going to the store. Which two albums are you going to get? Will this be one of them? I guess that technically counts. This is what passed for... Now, that's what they called rock and roll in 1983. I guess if Meatloaf is rock, and he probably is, then that that that's that's rock, even if it doesn't rock particularly hard. So let's say... So you got, you're going to the record store, and you got your 20 bucks, and I think you got the, the gimmick by now. Let's say you've been spending a lot of time watching MTV and you are really responding to this gigantic wave of new wave, largely British, but not entirely. Some of the bands are British. Some of them merely act that way. But there's there's an army of them, a cavalcade, and a shocking number of them released one of their signature albums in this in this very same month this is sort of the flashpoint for that entire movement and i was thinking a little bit about what did that really mean because new wave as i understand it really grew out of punk rock all the band everybody did punk and everybody burned out on doing three chord rock songs and then they found out about keyboards and drum machines and they found out that as little musical skill as it takes to play one two three one two three punk rock it doesn't take a whole lot more to play rudimentary synth pop so a lot of them wanted to you know every generation needs to define itself against the preceding one so as punk got a little too stale and crusty a new generation of kids were like well we're gonna wear makeup and do this synth pop thing that's our way of being different but i also think that in its purest form the really early the the first wave of punk rock it took a degree of dedica dedication you know devotion you need you needed to kind of rebel against the system and to really do it right you needed to be living with eight people in one room without hot water and you know if you're really serious about smashing the system it needed to be like a lifestyle and so i think new wave in a lot of ways was about watering down the spirit of rebellion we were no longer 
rebelling against the fascist, Thatcherite, Reaganite governments, and it was more like rebelling against your mom who wouldn't let you go to the mall, you know? And that I think <laughs> that that I think is the 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 face of new wave rebellion as we see it. And it's it was hitting home. Obviously, it was really successful. It was hitting home in my personal house. I think I bought 45 singles of more than one of the next run of records we're about to check out. But you're going to the store, you're gonna buy your two albums. Maybe you will pick up the debut album from Culture Club. Do you really want to? You know, it's interesting how much the packaging of the music, the presentation of it can sometimes color the way that we receive the music itself. I could be wrong, but I feel like Culture Club, Boy George, was, were and was, uh, received as a mildly subversive figure, at least compared to everything else that was coming out of your TV screen into your suburban American living room. In 1982, he was signaling very openly to anybody who was paying attention that he was gay, although I don't know if he was technically out of the closet. And then on top of that, there was the gender-bending thing of the way that he wore makeup and the way that he dressed and his literal stage name. So I feel like he was considered a little bit of of a desperado in the pop culture. And yet, when you actually listen to the music... That song that we just listened to, that's not an aberration. Karma Chameleon does not rock any harder than that. I I think we can all agree. Pat Benatar did rock considerably harder than Culture Club. Honestly, change the vocal, that song would have been right at home on Lionel Richie's album with the sweater, with the sleeves up to his elbows and the collared shirt underneath it. Elsewhere in the new wave world of 1982, Madness were up to, I think, the four, either their fourth or their fifth studio album, and this would be their signature album. This is a song you remembered. I remember it from when I was a kid. It's grown on me more as I've gotten older and as I found out more about it. People tend to write songs about being in love or we got to get out of this town or whatever. Or, you know, I want to get laid. I can't think of another song that celebrates the subtle pleasures of um, a, a cozy, comfortable family life in a suburban home. And certainly not one that does it as well as Madness's signature hit, at least in my opinion, with all due respect to One Step Beyond. Our mum, she's so house-proud Nothing ever slows her down And a mess is not allowed Honestly, just if you're like a a new wave fan going into a record store in 82 and you can only get two records, are you going to get Culture Club? Are you going to get Madness? Are you going to get the debut album from Missing Persons?
listening back to that, uh, I'm kind of a fan of Gary Newman, the AKA Tubeway Army, most famous for. Well, we heard from him last time on the last episode of this show, but most famous for the the early '80s hit Cars. Missing Persons is kind of just Gary Newman Cars with like leg warmers on for mall chicks, right? But it's the thing. It was a vibe. It was very successful. They had multiple hit songs off of that album. In Excess did not have, I don't think, a lot of chart success with the album or the single that they put out in the same month, October of 82. They kind of like rejiggered and re-engineered their sound later in the decade, kind of taking a cue from... I always felt like they sort of saw how U2 blew the pop thing up to be stadium-sized, and that sort of inspired them, I, I guess, among other bands. it uh, Our friend, you probably know who I'm talking about, Will Pendarvis, always said that to him, In Excess was two bands. There was the early indie stuff, and then there was the... They flipped the switch and became the big arena pop rock act that, you know, they had gigantic success. They might have sold 10 million copies of the album Kick. But this song right here, I think most people would agree, is the pinnacle of the first phase of In Excess, which I, I think a lot of people quite rightly prefer. I looked it up. Nobody needs to at me. It sounded a little crazy coming out of my mouth, too. Kick by NXS did not sell 10 million albums. There's only so many Diamond albums, and that's not one of them. It did move 6 million units, though. So NXS at this point, nowhere near as big as they were going to be, but still delivering. Arguably, if you want to say that's their best song, you're not going to get an argument from me. So... You're still at the record store. You're still looking at the stuff that just came in this month. Just the brand new hot off the presses stuff. And you got to pick two. Who are you going with? We're not done yet. If it was five-year-old me, I'm not proud of this. But probably uh, one of the albums I would have been purchasing would have been from Adam Ant, an artist who was tailor-made for MTV. He was essentially a musical pirate with the synthesizer and used this one unusual drum beat in like all of his hit songs. But at least for me and my sister, it, uh, it, 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 it was a bullseye, at least in the Tully living room. Such heady, unusual, unpredictable times, a time of great disruption in the music industry. It had to be quite a bit like when uh, Nirvana first hit out of nowhere and all of a sudden all these talent scouts who'd been looking for the next 
Paula Abdul and boys to men had to flip on a dime to keep their jobs and go to some grungy club and find some kids in cardigan sweaters with holes in them playing atonal feedbacky guitar noise and then with a straight face go back to their bosses and go we got to get these guys these dudes are hot like you're coming out of the 70s disco has only been dead for 18 months and somebody picks up a phone and goes yeah i got this guy he dresses like a pirate he's got a white stripe straight across his face i'm not sure why he uses the same drum beat on all of his good songs oh and the song's a total ripoff of hound dog by elvis presley trust me it's gonna be huge and he was right Another song that was hitting hard with five-year-old Mike Tully in October 1982 was performed by some artists who were not significantly older than I was. Standing alongside uh, Eddie Grant's Electric Avenue as one of the undisputed highlights of early 80s reggae synth pop. Sure. Musical Youth and a song that was adapted. There was an, uh, an existing song called Pass the Coochie, I think, which was a slang term for a weed pipe, but whoever was running Musical Youth's career obviously had their sights set on mainstream success. Plus, it's just weird for a bunch of five-year-olds to be singing about smoking weed, no matter who your target audience is, I guess. And so they changed it to Dutchie, which is a, a slang term for Dutch oven, and they repurposed the lyrics to be about addressing global hunger. And it worked. They were nominated for a Grammy for the album from which that song was taken. Speaking of awards, in 1982, an officer and a gentleman ran away with a lot of awards, which is kind of weird because I don't feel like anybody ever talks about that movie and I don't who the heck watches it. And has anybody watched that movie in the last 30 years? I don't know. But it's like, that's the thing that made Richard Gere a really big star, right? And I think it's also what elevated Lou Gossett to being such a big uh, movie actor in the 80s as well. They put out an officer and a gentleman. Lou Gossett won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Deborah Winger nominated for Best Actress. Nominated for Best Screenplay. Editing. It goes on and on and on. But they're making a soundtrack. It's the 80s. Everything needs a big soundtrack and everyone needs a big song that we can make a music video that'll basically just be a free three-minute commercial four-hour movie playing over and over and over to all the kids who are watching this MTV thing. And producer Don Simpson was very happy, knew he had a hit movie on his hands, but was very discouraged by the song that they were going to use to lead the soundtrack. He said... This song is no good. It isn't a hit. That's a direct quote. Uh, Don Simpson, him and Bruckheimer did all those big blow em up explosion like uh, Nick Cage movies a decade later. But anyway, Don Simpson was not happy with the song they wanted to put on the soundtrack and make the single. He unsuccessfully demanded it be cut from the film. 
Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. This song would win the Oscar for Best Original Song. It was a number one hit, and somebody, I don't know who decides these things, later deemed it one of the songs of the century. I think it's kind of a piece of crap. But anyway, here it is. But we come to stare every day The lift is up where we belong Where the eagles cry On a mountain high The lift is up where we belong Far from the world Everybody's mom's favorite song in 1982, performed by Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warnes. Kiss, we're back. And this would be a, a relative highlight for, for their career, at least in terms of the 80s. So Kiss, obviously, very successful band in the 70s, and then... They did the disco song, which now, look on streaming services. I Was Made for Loving You, last I checked, is far and away the most successful Kiss song in the world today among people who are, you know, streaming things. But it was an embarrassment for the band, and I think it was a short term when it was successful, but it turned off a lot of their hardcore fans. And when they tried to get the magic back... Two of the four guys had really, really bad substance abuse issues, and I think they, they, you know, Gene Simmons and Paul, like, stuck their index finger in their mouth and held it up to the wind, and were like, okay, what's going on? What can we sort of latch our, our kiss shtick onto? And they looked at Pink Floyd and concept albums in the wall, and they incorrectly decided that was the direction they needed to go in, so you probably know the story. They made this... Um, this album called The Elder that was supposed to be the soundtrack to this movie that they were going to make. And it didn't even come out for years. It was just such a misfire that they didn't even bother trying to foist it on their fans, who we've seen over the years. KISS fans will buy anything. So if really think about the products that KISS has sold over the years, the fact that KISS wouldn't release that album tells you something uh, fortuitously they hooked up with guitar player Vinnie Vincent, who they wrote with, and he successfully rejuvenated their sound such that when we find them here in October of 82, this is the end of them wearing the makeup, I think. I know the music video for the song. They're definitely wearing the makeup. And they had a hard time transitioning into the the pure hair metal thing and it just became a bunch of very very paul sounding songs crazy nights and stuff and the ballad forever and they were just sort of grandfathered in because all those all the big hair metal bands grew up worshiping kiss so they weren't they weren't going anywhere but it took them a while to actually figure out how to successfully rip off the bands who were ripping them off. This is really the end of, I'm not a Kiss person, but I think even Kiss fans would agree. This is the end of the classic era. This is one last hurrah of the exact kind of stuff that put Kiss on the map in the first place, particularly this song right here.
love that song. I don't. I don't know what it is, but a lot of the I, I like um, Cold Gin, Strutter, Detroit Rock City is really cool. But I, I can do without most of the big Kiss hits. That one, I remember they played that music video because that came along late enough that they had a video, even though it's just a bunch of live footage. And they used to play that occasionally on Headbangers Ball years later. And, you know, it had the whole kit, Gene puking up blood, what have you. Gene Simmons is a very, very, very limited lead vocalist, but he he uses what he's got to a uh, pretty terrific effect on that song right there. So you're a kid, you got 20 bucks, you're in the record store. There's a pretty good chance that the record store that you're going to isn't even carrying this next album, but it is a significant release, a landmark release that will reverberate through the culture, arguably until the present day. Grandmaster Flash. But I couldn't get far because a man with the touch of repossessed my car. Don't push me because I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Standing on the front stoop, hanging out the window, watching all the cars go by, roaring as the breezes blow. Crazy lady. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and the title track from the message well friends we have just about reached the end of the beginning of all the stuff that i think is worth taking a look back at from october 82 as always i invite you to join me for the back nine which will be highlighted by this song i mentioned in the 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 pre-roll to this show george martin the fifth beetle worked steadily after the Beatles broke up, he produced a lot of Paul McCartney stuff for, for one thing, but uh, out of the stuff that had any mainstream impact in his post-Beatles career, I would say the album that he worked on that came out in October 82 was the biggest outlier. I just, I, I could give you a thousand guesses who George Martin worked with in 82 and i don't think you would ever stumble upon the correct answer a hint is it wasn't something that he found on his own it was something his teenage daughter tipped him off to who was it you'll have to come over there and uh and join me at patreon.com slash mike tully like i said in the beginning i'm gonna throw up the video as well so you can not only hear me listen to old music you can watch me listen to old music for free exclusively at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. But before I go, I will leave you with this. Nobody is saying that um, Metallica was unoriginal or a ripoff band or anything like that, but they always openly acknowledged their influences. And you could definitely tell some of their influences were very influential on Metallica's classic sound. None so much as Diamond Head, who wrote a song that Metallica, the song is most famous for being covered by Metallica. This is, I'm, I'm sure there are people who are fairly big fans of Metallica who don't know Metallica did not write this song. They covered a song, and it's a pretty faithful cover of a track by Diamond Head, which also came out October of 82. I will leave you with the original version of Diamond Head's Am I Evil? <laughs> 